So, year and a half ago, I turned 40, and my wife Jackie, who loves me, knows that I love chocolate cake. She knows that I love chocolate and peanut butter, and so she made me a very special cake for my 40th birthday. Would you like to see a picture of it? Well, I have one anyway. Take a look. There it is. Yeah. Uh, we're thinking about a little side business. Uh, if you can't really tell from where you're sitting, Reese's peanut butter cups all around the outside, uh, pieces of Reese's peanut butter cups all around the top. So turn 40, had my special peanut butter chocolate cake, because uh, I think really chocolate and peanut butter are like God's gift to you and to me, am I right? <laughs> Fun fact though, nothing to do with my sermon. Here's a tip for you. Have you ever tried Oreo cookies dipped in peanut butter? Okay, I just found out about this like two days ago, thanks to my good friend Emily Leeds. Uh, <laughs> dipped in peanut butter and then dipped in milk. It is basically a Reese's peanut butter dipped in milk because you can't do that with the cup. You know what I'm saying? Try it today, and if you don't like it, I will give you $5 next Sunday, I promise. <laughs> Amazing. So, turn 40, birthday cake. Next morning, it's a pretty big cake. I'm thinking, you know what I'm going to have for breakfast? a piece of my birthday cake. Here I am the day after <laughs> with my green smoothie in my hand to wash it down because, you know, balance, right? <laughs> so minutes after this picture was taken, I finish my cake, clear my plate, put it in the sink, turn around, this is our kitchen table, and I was reaching to the top shelf in our kitchen to get my vitamins off the shelf to refill my multivitamin you know daily thing because that's what I do now that I'm that old and as I'm reaching for the at the top shelf to get the vitamins down I sneezed and I threw out my back here I am minutes after that happened like the irony of this day is fantastic. and I know it's not my best look is it I mean enough of that I tell you that to tell you this. I've realized that every trip to the gym, I'm just delaying the inevitable. <laughs> that it is literally all downhill from here, physically. It's Robert Jordan who says that death comes to us all. The only question is how we face it. Some of us who are here in the room this morning have had to face death in very personal ways. And it's this question that faces you and me this morning. Where am I going? What's around the bend after I breathe my last breath? Because Death comes to us all. The only question is how we face it. Over the course of the last few weeks, we've been looking at the ultimate questions. Questions that our hearts long to have answers to. Whether we're conscious of how we're putting together the answers to them or not, that we all long to know something about where we came from, our origin, 
and what's certain, how we can know what truth really is and what our identity is, who we are and why we matter and how we can have freedom, what meaning is and what life can be like. This last question as we wrap our series today is, is the question that is about our future. Where are we headed? And I would argue that this is much more than a philosophical curiosity. It has practical implications for the way that we live our lives today in the present. A couple years ago, the University of California in San Diego gave to two groups of students the same work of classic literature. And one group of students, they gave the book and asked them, after they were done to describe their experience reading the group. The second group of students, they gave the same work and asked them also to describe their experience after they were done. But the difference between the two groups is that in the second group, they gave them the ending of the story that they were reading before they even began the book. Which group would you guess, is the group that enjoyed the story more? Was it the first group who didn't know how the story ends or the second group who knew how their story ended? Take a guess. Anybody? You might think conventional wisdom would say the first group. Not knowing what happens from page to page, but in fact, it was the second group of people who knew the ending of their story, enjoyed the story more. I would argue that the same thing is true about our lives today. That knowing how our story ends changes the way that we live the chapters and the seasons of our life today from day to day and from page to page. The ending of our story as we face our future has practical implications for the way that we live today in the present. They're inseparable then and now. So let's do two things together. Let's look first at our future Facing our future, we'll talk about that first, without faith and with faith. And then second, what that means for our presence, not just someday, but today. How we can find meaning and purpose as we wait for our future to come to its fulfillment. So first, facing our future. Now, If you were to ask the average person in America today what happens after you die, most people would agree that you die and you go to a better place, whatever that kind of place may be. Uh, A survey was conducted among Americans just in 2001. 73% of Americans today believe in a heaven, some concept of heaven. And I would argue that we are more comfortable with the concept of heaven than we are about the reality of death. I have a friend, not a Christian, a couple of years ago, and maybe you're here and you're not a Christian either. And I can remember he, the way that he described the death of somebody very close to him, a family member and how uncomfortable he was with the word death. Rather than use the word death as a verb to describe that she died, he talked about how she had passed to soften the reality of his loss. This is like what 
The author, Diana Athill, says in an article that she wrote for The Guardian in 2014, the age of 96, she lived to be 100 years old, but before she died, she wrote an article entitled, It's Silly to be Frightened of Being Dead. And here's what she says at one point in the essay. Death is the inevitable end of an individual object's existence. An individual object, you hear how sterile that sounds? Almost denying the fact that we're a body and soul, a, a being. Death is the inevitable end of an individual object's existence. I don't say, quote, end of life because it's a part of life. What's she saying? She's saying that from a secular perspective, without faith, that death is a part of life, that death is natural. As Elton John sings, a part of the circle of life. And so I would argue that by and large, as people, we're much more comfortable with the idea of heaven than the reality of death. I mean, if you're in the room and if you're a Christian, facing your own death and the fear of what seems unknown and the sadness of saying goodbye to the people who matter to you. Whether you have faith or, or you don't, we're much more comfortable with the idea of heaven than the reality of death. And there's a reason for that. J.R.R. Tolkien, the guy who wrote the Lord of the Rings stories, says in an essay entitled On Fairy Stories, he says this, I find this fascinating. He says, there are indelible human longings that only fantasy stories and sci-fi and superhero tales can speak to. That for centuries, we've had a fascination with knights of the round table, and we might say today, he wrote these words 100 years ago, we might call them today Marvel superhero stories. You know, grossing billions of dollars at the box office. Why? We've had a fascination with knights of the round table and Marvel superheroes, I would say, and escaping time and death and being connected to other living things. The ability to live long enough to achieve the things that we can only dream of. Why? Here's what Tolkien says. The reason we have these longings is that we know deep down we were not destined to die. If you ask a Christian... What happens when you die? They'll agree. You go to a better place. They'll have a name for that place. They'll call it heaven. In fact, that's what John has recorded for us on the night where Jesus was betrayed. He's in the upper room with his friends. John was there that evening, and he remembers that Jesus said that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I, where I am because in my Father's house are many rooms. This is like the gospel hymn that we sing. I am but a stranger here. Heaven is my, anybody? Home. And if that's true, that heaven is your home, it's only half the story because in fact you weren't made to escape this world you were made for this world that's what Paul says 
In his letter to the church in Thessalonica, chapter four of his first letter, he says, I don't want you to miss the rest of the story. I don't want you to be uninformed or to grieve like the rest of people who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so he will bring with him those who have died in him. He will come down from heaven with a cry of command and a loud voice from heaven, and he will raise from the ground those who have fallen asleep in him. This is what John sees the next to last chapter of the whole Bible. He says, then I saw the new city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven as a bride dressed for her husband. And for the, the former things had passed away, he says, the new heavens and the new earth have come down and the sea was no more. Heaven and earth is a way to describe the stars and the planets and the galaxies above and the earth below. All of creation made new. He says the sea is no more. That's what separates us from God and from other people. It's a metaphor. It's no more. And he hears a voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men and he will be with them and be their God Jesus says, write these things down because they are trustworthy and true. Behold, I am making all things new. Scripture is so thin in its descriptions of heaven. But it gives us just enough of a glimpse of the things that we really need to know. What's the big idea in the scriptures? What are they saying? It's not where we go, it's where God goes, that he comes down. And it's not what you get to do. It's what God does. It's not about the list of the things that you get to do when you get to heaven, as good as it will be to see the people who you love and as good as it will be to sit by the pool and to drink chocolate cake or eat chocolate cake forever. <laughs> Maybe you can drink it. I don't know. In heaven. I mean, those things are good. But the the best thing of those things is seeing Jesus face to face when he comes down. It's the new heavens and the new earth, the physical world that he renews and remakes. It's what we had when the Garden of Eden that we lost. It's the good things that we have every day that we take for granted and God's gifts that we walk away from. It's all of those things in full face to face with him every day forever. This, my friends, is your future. Not where you go, but where God goes. Not what you do, but what God does. And it's a future that you can face. Because in the resurrection of Jesus, we get a glimpse of what is to come for those who trust in him. This is a future that you can face with joy, with certainty, with confidence. That's your future. What about today? Let's talk about that. Because our future reality that is coming for you and for me, it's inseparable from our present day today. And what about now? I mean, is earth some sort of purgatory? Is this just heaven's waiting room? Actually, I do believe that's the state of Florida. <laughs> which I can say because I lived there at one time. What about now? Imagine you're standing in a stream. And it's shallow enough that you can wade in it. It goes up to your shins, to your knees. This is the Platte River that flows through our backyard here in Denver. 
And you look in either direction, upstream and downstream. Upstream, the river flows to you. Downstream, the liver, the liver, the river flows through you and from you. Let's take a look in each direction. Upstream, because upstream, let's call that God's work for you. If you were to think just for a moment, make a list of everybody who you've encountered in the last 24 hours, since the weekend started. Every errand you ran, every person who checked you out, every person who dropped off a package at your doorstep. What Martin Luther says is that God is hidden in all of the hats that we wear, and all our holy callings, all of our vocations are the masks of God, that God is hidden in all we do. So upstream to you, God heals you through the doctor who fills or gives you a prescription and the pharmacist who fills it. And God protects you through the sheriff's deputy who pulled you over when you were going too fast. And God feeds you through the guy who's slicing your meat at the deli in King Supers and the person who stocked the shelves in the produce section and the person who put on the shelf your $8 dozen eggs. (laughs) And God clothes you and shelters you through your employer the person who pays your salary, or the person upstream long ago who funded your pension. On a human level, these things look like an interaction of, we might simply say, vocations or jobs that make up the economy. But on a spiritual level, all of these things, God's work to you, are God's work for you in the present day. The Christian doctrine of vocation says that it all matters, that it's all not secular or spiritual, that it's all spiritual, paid and unpaid, whether it's your passion or not. We make the mistake in the church sometimes of overvaluing spiritual work and the people who wear the microphone and think that's where God is at work the most. No, my friends, the Christian, the biblical doctrine of vocation says it all matters. Every hat you wear, Here's the way Martin Luther put it. That the mother who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. Think about that the next time you're cleaning your bathroom. (laughs) The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. Everybody who you've encountered in the last 24 hours are the hands and the feet of God to serve you. And those are just the people you can see. I mean, because there are many more people around the bend who you can't see, people who, going back even further for generations, have helped you become the person that you are, whether you have ever met them or not. Upstream, God's work to you. Let's pivot finally in closing and look downstream, God's work through you. Because if you, if you look down at the water, the water that flows through your feet and around your shins, that the water is different simply because you're in the place where you're standing. Downstream, there's always a person on the other end 
of every good thing that you do. That every time you change a diaper, it matters. And every time you discipline your kids, it matters. And every time you call and leave a message for your adult son or daughter that they never return, it matters. And you may not ever see or meet the person who benefits from the work that you do, your client or your customer when you're on Zoom at home, but it all matters and it's never in vain. That's what Paul says. We're going to use these words in just a few moments. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul talks about the reality of the resurrection, how it's true and certain. And we looked at a portion of that chapter a couple weeks ago, and he lands the plane after he has mocked death, and he says, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? He connects the work of Jesus Christ and his, the way he conquered the grave to our present work today. Here's what he says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, Immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It lasts into God's new world. Maybe you heard this. You know what Martin Luther said he would do if he knew the world was going to end tomorrow. He said, I would plant a tree. Why? Because every act of service and love and every act of compassion matters. That every time you say, I love you, out loud, those words do something. Every time you say the three words, I am sorry, those words do something, they matter. And every time you say the words, I forgive you, those words matter. They do something. They change the people downstream, the people around us. And they last into God's new world. That through words like those words, through words that we speak and acts and ways that we serve, God's kingdom comes and his will is done. Done, that God comes down, not simply someday, but God comes down through your vocation in the place in the, of the stream of history where he has put you today not to be somewhere else and not to be someone else, but to be the you that you are in the place where he has put you for his purpose today. Look upstream God's work, his gifts to you. Look downstream. It's God's work through you. Now finally, this is hard, but this is the way that we follow Jesus today. The death is hard, and the resurrection is good. And waiting for the return of Christ is long. And our days on earth are short. So let's get to work. Let's abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that it is not in vain.
knowing that we may pour ourselves out and give of ourselves and sacrifice so much, but we have the strength of God whose power is made perfect in our weakness and your weakness in the calling that you have. This is a future that we can face together because God has given to you and to me great purpose in our present. In the name of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen and coming again for you and for me, amen. Let's stand now.